Welcome to the Paid in Full Podcast. I'm Devin Fadul, and in this show, I sit down with creators of all stripes who have decided to follow their passion and carve out a unique path to success. My goal is to dive into their stories, learn about their philosophies, and share their hard-earned wisdom. My guest today is Mike Sagoon. Mike is a professional men's coach, emotional healer, and just all-around beautiful human being. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including a pretty deep dive into his personal story, which I found to be both heart-wrenching and inspiring at the same time. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder to check out the show notes for links to everything we mentioned. My brother. Michael Sagoon. Hey, man. Good to see your face. You too, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm busy. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. same to you. Let's let's dive in if you don't mind. First off, tell me what you're doing now, where you're living, and uh, what's up. Hmm. Yeah. I am. Let me just slow down here for a few moments. Just get my grounding in. Um. So I am in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. It's central Mexico, about three and a half hours north of Mexico City. Um, it's high desert. We're about 6,200 feet up. I live in my dream home, actually, um, as it is right now. As, uh, and I'm feeling incredibly lucky and fortunate to be in a home and have a family that I feel safe in and that I feel completely like myself. A few years ago, right when I started my personal development story or journey, actually, um, are you familiar with Jack Canfield? Do you know that name? Yeah, I know him from the Tim Ferriss podcast. Yeah, he's an old school, like, personal development guy. He has this book called, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, I think it's like Seven Laws of Success or the Foundational Laws of Success. Anyways, like, maybe about eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, I was just going through a lot of stuff in my career and didn't really know what I wanted. And a friend recommended Jack Canfield's book. He's also the, the co-author or the producer of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And I read that growing up. I was obsessed with those books. But my friend also recommended Deepak Chopra's Seven Laws of Spiritual Success. And so I was going through Jack Canfield's book and going through all the exercises. And in the middle of the book, there's this exercise of like visualizing, visualizing what you want in your life. And one of the exercises was, what do you want your dream home to look like? And so I journaled down, I wanted uh, a big open space. I wanted a yard, I wanted a garden, I wanted a barbecue pit, I wanted an area to hold dance parties. I wanted floor to ceiling windows, and I wanted to be by the water. Fast forward eight or nine years later, uh, and all of those exist in my life today, except I'm not in the water. I'm in the high desert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what I love about this kind of work, this personal development work, is that I can visualize what I want in my life. And it's not about it popping up immediately. And it's actually not about, for me, it's not about like, this is what I want and I'm working every single part of my life to get to that goal. For me, it's about setting the intention and knowing that that's what I want in my life and then seeing how my body and my spirit move in that direction. And so I would say that the life that I'm living right now is the life that I wanted eight or nine years ago when I started this journey. Hmm. Um, and it's pretty it's pretty crazy to see how things just kind of fell into place. I'm very much the kind of person that has intentions and I'm not very goal oriented. I don't really set goals. I don't really set like, this is how much money I want to make in 10 years. And I'm the kind of person that goes, I want to live this kind of life and I'm just going to figure out, I'm going to let my body figure out how to get in that direction. So I'm here in Mexico with my husband, with my pit bull. We have a garden. You can see my background. I have a ton of plants. I live a pretty calm and open life. 
where I live in Mexico affords me to travel a lot and do what I want for a living. And I love it. I love every part of what I do. I love every part of my life right now. And I keep saying right now because I know things change, right? Like things aren't, things aren't permanent. There's impermanence in everything. And so where I am right now, I'm accepting that I'm in this season of satisfaction, the season of fulfillment, and the season of really doing everything that I love. That's beautiful, man. Thanks for sharing. I'm curious about the difference between uh, intentions and goals. And I say that in the sense of like tactically, how can I set intentions and then how can I think of goals in order to get there? Yeah. And I'm also thinking about this in context of my practice and my clients. And we we do this exercise where we set this kind of money vision, which I think is probably an, an intention. And then we also set goals. You know, I want to be debt-free in X amount of months, or I want to make this much amount of money, or I want to pay off my house or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like, I understand the difference, I think, so somewhat intuitively, but I don't know if somebody were to ask me how, how to define, how to differentiate the two, because to a lot of us, including me in a lot of parts of my life, they're kind of one and the same. So how do you break them apart? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, to me, an intention is a vision of what we want. It is led through um, slowing down and having deep awareness of what I am capable of and what I what I actually want, what I truly want. 10 years ago, if you would have asked me what I wanted in my life financially, I probably would have said that I want to, I actually did say this, I just want to feel safe. I want to feel financially stable. And these things that I want in my life, there are there are parameters. There are things that I need to think about for those intentions. So when I was living in a Bay Area, the cost of living in a Bay Area is a lot higher than where I live now. And so back then, my intention for living safe meant like I was making one hundred fifty to $300,000 a year just to live. Hmm. And today that has shifted because where I live, I don't need to make that much money in order for me to live a safe life, to live a financially safe life. Intentions for me is there's this energetic pool to it that allows me to intuitively follow and lead myself in that direction. Goals for me are these parameters that I would set for myself in order for me to achieve a milestone, to achieve something in my life. Goals for me also are more structured and they follow a step-by-step plan. And for me, intentions, there aren't really steps. There isn't really a plan. It is for me deeply listening to what my calling is and how I lead myself to get to that intention. And so intentions feel more loose and more open and goals feel more rigid and closed for me. Okay. I think we're on the same page. It's just you're much better at at articulating it. I need to get better at articulating that for my practice and my clients because my practice is much more about the emotional side of money and a money mindset and kind of, like you said, feeling safe. The goal for everybody is to have peace of mind, uh, to not have to think about money. That's my goal for you. That's my job. So talk to me about what you're doing now with every man and outside of every man. And then again, I want to rewind. Yeah. So every man is a wellness organization. We focus on male identified folks. We really focus on the somatic experience of a man. So the body, the soma is just a Greek word for the body. And we really focus on building a somatic intelligence and a somatic awareness of our bodies and our nervous systems so that when we are in situations where we feel high stress, we know how to regulate our bodies so that we can assess and we can take on whatever stress is in front of us in a calm and slow and thoughtful way. What we mostly do at Everyman is we provide spaces for men to share. I think that's the biggest thing that we do is we create circles and retreats and experiences for men to develop community with each other and to share vulnerably with each other. 
And we believe that as we share vulnerably with people and the more often that we do it with people, the deeper connection that we feel within ourselves and within our communities. Male loneliness is an epidemic. It's impacting so many of us. We can see it in the mental health statistics today, right? The depression statistics are rising. Anxiety statistics are rising. Um, suicide statistics are rising. And men have unlearned how to communicate with each other and how to connect with each other. There's also the storylines in our male-dominated spaces that we've took on to believe that what it means to be a man is to do things alone, this lone wolf syndrome. I think, you know, you and I are in a generation where we can look back at our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers and see that that loneliness may have worked for them in some aspects of their life, but it may have been a detriment in other parts of their life. I know that for my father, he didn't have close male relationships in his life, not like the ones that I have today. I didn't know my grandfather to have friends growing up. I knew my grandfather to be at home gardening by himself. He had community within our family. We had a huge family. Coming up Filipino, we always had big families or we had big families. And so he had that, but he didn't have any other brothers, some non-familial brothers in his life that he can lean on. And frankly, they didn't know how to. They were never taught how to connect with each other. And so at Everyman, we provide programs and experiences to help men drop into their bodies, drop out of their heads and feel with other men. And we do that with um, online programs. I currently facilitate a program called Fundamentals. It's a four-week intensive program. It's interactive, and it's all about learning the basics of what our bodies feel, developing the emotional vocabulary and the somatic vocabulary, and doing it with a group of 20-plus men. We also facilitate retreats, three to four retreats a year, and these are at beautiful locations all around the United States. And we pack a weekend of men basically sitting around and talking and sharing and healing. You know, we've known for generations that community healing is incredibly important and it's part of our DNA. When we think about our ancestors sitting around the fire and some of our ancestors would integrate chanting or dancing or even touch and intimacy, that was so much part of community healing. And it's so much part of all of our lineage. And we've lost that a bit. We've lost that, I believe, through the industrialized re revolution where males were leaving home to go work in these factories to provide for the family. And so all of a sudden, we had to manufacture so many things to keep up with the population. And who was working in those factories? Well, fathers were. And so kids were left to be with mothers and left to be with themselves. And so we've lost a lot of male role modelship in our life. Hey guys, just a quick break to let you know this podcast is sponsored by my company, Ada Financial. You hate personal finance and rightfully so. Let Ada handle the boring stuff like investments, student loans, and insurance so you don't have to. To learn more, Check out the link in the show notes or go to adafinancial.com. Now back to the show. I think an undertone of what we're also doing at Everyman is we're teaching men how to be mentors for other men. We're teaching men how to be better fathers. We're teaching men how to be better spouses, better husbands, better brothers, better family members, better community members. And the way that we do it is really simple. We sit we relax with each other, we slow our bodies down, we open up and we connect. And so these experiences that we that we facilitate are always incredibly powerful. We just had one uh, this past weekend in Joshua Tree. And um, if you're listening to this and you are interested in going to a retreat, know that it's very scary and vulnerable to go to one. And that's a very common experience. Oftentimes guys share that they have one foot out the door. Oftentimes, guys share, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. And oftentimes, guys share, I'm here because my partner wants me to be here. And where there's fear, Friday nights, 
that fear gets replaced with connection, joy, and safety. And so what we're able to do in just 48 hours is incredibly powerful and potent. And again, the work that we do is simple. We're not teaching guys these abstract ways of thinking of spirituality. We're not teaching these deeply scientific rules of polyvagal theory or somatic experiencing. We're really just providing spaces for men to connect with each other. And um, I really see our work spreading and rippling to other generations. I think we're starting to see our generation, the millennials, and then also younger generations, the Gen Zers, who really care about mental health and who really care about connection. Because if we were to really dive deep into our DNA, connection is part of our survival. We are hardwired to connect. We're hardwired to be in community. We're hardwired to have intimate connections and relationships. And um, with our work, we're reintegrating that into our societies and reintegrating that into our communities. Ah, uh, man, you know, um, we met via every man. I was obviously brand new and I had never, ever even thought that that was a thing. Um, and then just after years and decades of being fairly closed off, I pop into every man into one of the calls and it was like a whole new world opened up for me. I can say with utter certainty that I am a different person today because of every man. There's no question. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not saying that because you're here. It's a fact. And um, yeah, man. So you're looking at, you're looking at a convert, but the long and the short of it is that there's a, there's a pretty clear, there's BE and there's AE. There's before every man and there's after every man <laughs> for me. I, I love what you said there because I think that's a common experience for men. You know, we, we often talk about how every man is CrossFit for the emotions. When we come into this space, we are taking emotional reps, right? We're building and strengthening our capacity to feel. And I think a common experience for men is this shit is scary because we're breaking patterns. We're breaking our understanding or our what we know about our own emotions and the resistance that we have towards feeling our emotions, we have generations and generations of our fathers. You know, we think about like intergenerational trauma. We think about epigenetics. We think about how we were raised as kids and watching our fathers and their emotions. And then we also have to think about the years and maybe even decades of us suppressing these emotions. And we're not even just talking about the societal pressures that come into suppressing our emotions, but also the familial pressures that we have and that we grow up with around suppressing our emotions. And it takes time to develop that skill, to develop that muscle. It is very much a muscle to allow yourself and give yourself full permission to feel any of these emotions. Right? I think for many of us men, anger is an easy emotion for us to access, especially when we're being threatened. But shame is a hard emotion for us to access. Sadness, mm -hmm. grief, and even joy is a really hard emotion for us to access. And guys show up every week. And I've seen guys for like since the time that you came, right? Since 2020, for over three years now, I've seen the same guys come every single week. And there's still resistance for them to share, resistance for them to drop in, resistance for them to go deeper into the emotion. And that's okay. We're not here to pressure you into crying. We're not here to pressure you to get into your joy. We're here just to make this space available for you to explore and to discover what it's like for you to be more sensitive, to be more emotional. I believe that our sensitivities are our superpowers. I believe that when we can own our sensitivity, we can assess situations and assess environmental situations and also our internal environment and know exactly what to do because we are attuned to our emotions and we're agile with our emotions. I think to your point, man, like this takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of practice. And just because you've been doing it for three years doesn't mean you're going to be the most emotionally intelligent person in the room, there's still going to be a lot of work to be done. And I've been doing this work for several years and I still see my shit pop up in stressful situations, especially with my husband. I still 
fall into the same traps that I used to get into 10 years ago. I still react in ways that I used to when I was younger. And these are all just lessons for me. It's all just data. I don't know if I'll ever be like the most enlightened person in the room where I'm completely regulated and and I have a hold on to my emotions and I can let my emotions be. But I will say that I feel a lot healthier emotionally and mentally by learning these emotional skills. Well, I've seen you work, man, and you are just a an absolute master of leading a group of 40 or so men in a conversation. I mean, that that right there is hard enough, regardless of what the conversation is about. But on top of that, you are you just have this way about you that is it's a, it's a sight to behold and I and I mm. don't say that lightly. So what I'm getting at is is how did you learn these skills? It is a skill, right? I mean, I think yeah. some people are, are more born with that that thoughtfulness, that sensitivity, right, than others. But still, a lot of this is learned. How did you learn it? So, like, love that. It's yeah. a great question, man. So, what what I it is a skill. As a facilitator, one of the greatest skills that I've learned is learning how to show up safely in spaces. I'm talking about emotional safety. I'm also talking about co-regulation. And so in order for me, what's what's co-regulation? So co-regulation is our ability as humans to help other people regulate their nervous systems and feel slowed down and calm. And so a great example of this is your daughter is throwing a temper tantrum and is wilding out and everything is chaotic. And you use your body as a tool to present safety so that your daughter feels safe with you. And then your daughter can fully cycle through that emotion. I didn't have that growing up. What I had growing up was I'm get angry and my mom or my dad is like, put that anger away. Or, you know, the classic is like, I'll give you something to cry about. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and my anger was also met with more anger and my anger was met with discipline. And so I learned at a young age that if I was angry or if I was crying, if I was upset, I was afraid that what safety was for me was to shut it down and then to be alone, to go be by myself. And so co-regulation for my mom would would have probably looked like, Michael, I know that you're angry right now. I know that you're upset and it's okay. Can I hug you? Can I hold you? You could be angry in my arms. You can cry in my arms and you can just be here. And I'm not going to tell you that you can't be angry. I'm not going to tell you that you can't be sad. You're absolutely allowed to have these emotions. And so co-regulation is our our nervous system's natural ability to slow a person down. And you may have felt this when your babies didn't have vocabulary or didn't have language yet. They're crying and you pick them up and you hold them up against you and they soothe. You know, this is creating secure attachment. This is creating emotional safety in a relationship. This is creating trust for your baby to say, dad feels safe with me and I can feel this way. And uh, a lot of it gets lost because we get scared of our own emotions. We get scared of what we feel and we don't know exactly what we feel. We don't have the emotional intelligence to know what we feel. And so what happens often when a parent scolds another kid for feeling their emotion is that parent feels unsafe in their body to feel that emotion themselves. And so then they project onto their kid and they say, don't feel that emotion because I feel unsafe. Those might not be the words. That could be something that's very unconscious for them. But what they're basically saying is, I need you to stop crying or being angry because I need to save myself here because I'm uncomfortable with my anger and my sadness. And so I embody emotional safety and I embody co-regulation. And what that means is I feel completely safe in my being. I feel completely secure with who I am. I know who I am when I show up into these spaces. And that's taken years and years and years of practice, man. And my journey into understanding co-regulation and emotional safety in my body started when I was really young. One, I had the privilege, and I think it's a privilege because it's not accessible to many people, but I had performing arts growing up. I started doing theater when I was in seventh grade. I also had the privilege of being a touring artist and a touring performer for part of my career. And so what theater taught me was how to be embodied, how to 
take on characters and take on their emotions and really embody them on stage. And where it was unsafe for me to feel emotions at home, it was completely safe and even honored for me to feel these emotions on stage. I was glorified for feeling these emotions on stage. And so much of my characters had so much of who I wanted to be in these emotions. And so I can play an angry character and my anger can come out on stage. And it would almost like for me, complete these emotions that I never were able to complete at home. And theater also taught me that there is an audience that I had to impact. There's an audience that I had to be vulnerable with. Vulnerability is just allowing ourselves to impact others and others to impact us. And so at a really young age, I learned that by being on stage and doing these performances and taking on these characters, I can make an audience member cry. I can make an audience member laugh. I can even make an audience member feel anger. And so what I was doing, and this was very unconscious to me as a performer when I was young, was I was letting my body say, you are safe to feel whatever you're feeling right now. I really, I also had a privilege of having a lot of males in my life that I looked up to. I knew intuitively that I needed a father figure in my life. My dad wasn't there. My dad was around, but he wasn't around. It was like one of those, you know, he was, he was a workaholic. He was always traveling. And then when we did have my father, when I did see him, he was working on the yard or working on his car. And so there wasn't there wasn't intimacy or affection between my father and I. And I knew that I craved it. I didn't know it consciously. I didn't know that, yeah, I need a father, but I knew that I needed a male in my life that I can lean on. And so around middle school, I really attached myself to my uncle. We had a lot of the same interests. He loved basketball. I loved basketball. He loved playing video games. I loved playing video games. And so he just kind of took me under his wing and... You know, my, my uncle and I didn't have that many deep talks when we were younger, when I was younger, but he did provide for me a sense of guardianship. Um, and he took me to like father-son work days and he, you know, we would, we would go to the basketball court and play pickup games for hours and hours and hours. We'd stay up all night and like play video games. And then in high school, there was a period in high school where, you know, I called him every day just to like update him on what was going on in my life. And along with that came two other mentors in my life who were like big brothers to me. They were 10 to 15 years older than me. And um, they really took me in as a little brother. And so I had all these male mentors in my life. And then also I had my cousins, my older cousins. There are different kinds of mentors, right? They bought me alcohol. They hung out with me. And like back then they're street racing. And so we would like do drag racing, right? And I was like a kid. And then in high school, one of my theater directors by the name of Kevin Lassett really taught me the skill of facilitation. And we would have these late rehearsals. He would gather all of us students, there'd be like 40 students in a room. And before we even started rehearsals, he would open up with a deep question, like, what are you most afraid of in your life? And we'd go around the circle and everyone would share. And his point of doing that with us as young kids was for us to really embody these emotions so that that showed on stage. And so I had all of these experiences in my life that allowed me to be embodied, but also feel safe enough to feel these emotions. I feel really privileged in that way. I feel um, when I was younger and I saw my emotional acuity and how I was able to just feel into these emotions, I was way more facile at these emotions than my peers were. I could drop into an emotion really quickly and, and genuinely feel it. And it was really authentic for me. And so what I do today is really what I've learned over decades of training from the time that I was in seventh grade. That now I'm 36, you know, all these years later, I've developed the skill of, of creating a space of safety and it starts with me, right? And so what you may have experienced with me coming into this space, your body may have been like, okay, like I feel anxious, I feel afraid. Your mind may have been like, oh my God, get me the fuck out of here. Like what is going on? 
but there is a part of your nervous system that said, oh, but there's something about Mike's body and about his nervous system that wants him to keep me here. Like this is probably something that I haven't experienced yet. And your body was probably craving that kind of feeling. Your body was probably craving that kind of affection, that kind of intimacy with another person. And so your body was intuitively feeling into, I want to, I want to return. I want to come back because this feels okay. And this feels safe. Hmm. So it sounds like you, you were kind of intuitively learning these things in an informal setting. Um, at some point you started learning these skills formally though, right? What did that look like? So I worked for this company called Kaiser Permanente and they have a department called educational theater. And in that department, we facilitated, basically. We went all around the communities in Northern California, and we put up these, we transformed multi-purpose rooms and theaters, and we set up our sets, and we did these 45-minute plays around different health topics, from health to food to exercise to puberty to sex to HIV. And it, you know, it was all age-appropriate. But through our training, you know, we would practice these facilitation skills. We would practice workshops. Part of our training was to go into different departments and facilitate different topics and different, and we would learn basically how to engage young people and engage students. We also, there's, we did a, a, a lot of training with Lincoln Center Education from New York. And so they would fly out and they would teach us what they do around facilitation and how they really meet the needs of communities so that whatever they're teaching really impacts those communities and those communities can comprehend and they can actually learn what the topics are. And so that was part of my training, but I also trained with a company called Challenge Day. And this was a an organization, or this is an organization based out of Northern California. And they travel all around the world and they gather high school students into a gymnasium for a two to three day workshop all around connection. And it's kind of similar to what we do at Everyman, like at our Everyman retreats, but they're three days and they're with young people. And so there's group work where they sit around in a circle, there's an adult facilitator and kids just share. Hmm. And then we do these huge activities with the entire school. And basically the, the curriculum was about basically teaching kids how to connect with each other, how to see each other for each other's similarities rather than isolating and segregating because of our differences. And so I've had extensive training in facilitation. And this this started what, right after college or? Yeah, so I started working with educational theater um, after a year of doing college and I took a break from college. So when I was 19, I started facilitating this work. And then I went to school, I went back to school, got finished up my degree and then I went back to Kaiser Permanente full-time and continued to facilitate for them. And how long were you there at Kaiser? 10 years. 10 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that? So this is kind of how I, I found every man, actually. So I think for many of us, um, you know, we, we, we want change. Our bodies need to shift things around to do things different. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we got to do a complete career flip. It just means that we need to do something a little different. We need to shift things up. And so around the 70 year mark at being at Cars of Permanente, I felt this itch. I felt restless, really. The work that we were doing was incredibly powerful and meaningful. From the time that that organization started to the time that I left, there was actual data that showed that young people and their ability to learn and their emotional IQ, uh, their EQ was significantly growing and deepening and getting better. But I was also getting bored. I was getting tired of it. And I also knew that I wanted to work with people. Like my purpose, my entire life, man, was all about serving people. When I grew up in the church, it was about service. When I got into high school, we did a lot of community events. It was about service. When I got into uh, college, it was about serving, giving back to the community, being a teacher. And so being a person of service and helping people always followed me through my journey and through my purpose. And so I knew that I had a bigger vision in my life. I didn't really know what it was. And so I started to test different things out. At the time, I was a bodybuilder, which was kind of crazy. Uh, and so I wanted to get into to the personal training 
and it just didn't stick with me. It didn't like resonate with me. Um, and then I started doing all these like different, I knew that I wanted to facilitate and I knew that I wanted to work with adults. And so my friend introduced me to coaching and the school that I went to is called, was called Coaches Training Institute and it's now called Coactive Coaching. And I went to like one of their intro weekends and bro, like I walked into that space and after the first hour, I knew immediately that that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to coach people. And I didn't really have a niche. And so I went through the program. It took about a year and a half. And um, through that time, there were these uh, men's mental health statistics coming out. This was like around 2016. And there are these new statistics around depression and suicide and loneliness and anxiety. And um, I, at the time, I was also... Um, kind of coming into my own as a gay man. And I knew what suicide ideation felt like. I knew what depression felt like. I knew what loneliness felt like. I was really starting to come out of that period of my life. Um, I come out in, in 2011 and in 2016, I was finally coming into my own and like owning who I was. And so I had spent the four, the, the previous four years in that state of like, what is going on? I'm so lonely. I want to, I don't want to be here anymore. And so I, in my, during my coaching program, I just decided to start men's groups. And I didn't know anything about Mankind Project. I didn't know anything about every man. I didn't, I didn't do any research. I just thought, let me gather a group of guys and let's just talk. Let's just hang out. And so I would post on meetup in in the bay area and and i would just set a topic like what is vulnerability and i would get like 20 dudes to show up in my living room and there there were guys like standing on walls and like guys sitting on my couches and in chairs and people on the floor and we would just have an open conversation about loneliness about anxiety about connection uh, about our experiences um, and then i started doing retreats and um, these were more like personal development retreats, like the skills that I learned in coaching school. So like find your values and like, here's your purpose and um, let's set a, let's set goals and, and all of this. And it just wasn't feeling right. Like it, it, I felt like I could do more. I felt like we can go deeper and I just didn't have a skill. I didn't know how to do that yet. And so a few friends kept hounding me about every man. They kept, saying like, go check out these guys, every man, go check out these guys, every man. And every time I hopped onto the website, it just didn't land, right? Like back then the website was a bunch of white dudes with beards in the woods. And I was like this gay man of color from Oakland. <laughs> like, all right, like it just didn't resonate with me. You know, like I, I didn't feel represented in their community. And so after a few times of a few of my, my friends saying, hey, this, this organization is like blowing up right now. You got to go check them up, check them out. I saw that there was a re retreat in Petaluma in Northern California. And I told myself, the only way that I'm going to do this is if I have a conversation with them and kind of get to know what they're all about. And so I hopped on a call with Dan Doty and um, he was fucking absolutely brutally honest with me, man. I told him what my fears were. I told him that I feared being the only gay man, the only man of color of this retreat because they didn't have any representation on their website. And he's like, Mike, you're not wrong, man. Like, you're probably going to be the only openly gay man and you're probably only going to be the only man of color. Hmm. And because he was so candid about it, because he was so, like, honest, I gave him my money. <laughs> and I went to this retreat and... There were 60 guys there. I was definitely the open, the only openly gay man. I was one of three or four men of color. And I felt accepted the entire time. I felt like they totally welcomed me in. That first circle I opened up with, I'm a gay man of color and I am afraid right now. I feel fear. And all I saw was like head nods and guys leaning in. No one judged me. No one shamed me. And like, I saw the acceptance of, in that and I just started crying. 
And I didn't know anyone around me. I remember the guy right next to me put his hand on my shoulder. And then the guy on my other side put his hand on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, this feels really fucking awkward. Like, I don't know you. And this feels really weird. And I'm going to let myself just take this in. I'm going to receive this love from these guys. And then the rest is history, man. Like from that point on, I just kind of dove in head first and started working with the organization, started facilitating retreats. And then here we are several years later leading this work. Oh, man. Um, I'm struck by how much of an impact you're making. Yet you don't have the capital C credentials to do this, right? You don't have a an MD in psychology or whatever the PhDs, all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about becoming a professional therapist? I think it all for me. There might be a time in my life where I become an MFT or LCSW or get some kind of higher education credential. Right now, it's not what I want. It's not what I desire. I believe in peer-to-peer -peer healing and peer-to-peer -peer community healing. I believe in peer-to-peer -peer support. I mean, if we look at Alcoholics Anonymous, they've been doing this for decades. And that's all peer-to-peer -peer work. And millions of people have been healed through those programs. And a lot of those people that work in those programs are, are just former addicts. And they've gone through the program and they've learned. It's in our DNA, man. It's our in, in our DNA to hold space. It's in our DNA to help people heal. It is innately part of us. And so I can learn all the different syndromes and all the different mental illnesses, and I can learn uh, all the different ways that we can triage. But right now in my practice, what I'm finding very valuable is just allowing the person to just be, and I don't need a higher education to do that. All I need is for me to feel safe in my body and not get into my egoic ways of trying to control the situation or try to save me from my emotions. All I need is for me to be slowed down, calm, and I need to listen. And yeah, I have skills in coaching and I have, I know how to, I, I can listen to what someone's saying and really pick things out and pick things out that they're probably unconscious of. But that came from just practicing over the years. That came from me messing up and fucking up and, and really deeply practicing doing. Um, and doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm learning somatic experiencing. I'm learning to become a somatic experiencing practitioner. I'm adding another acronym to my name, right? This is Peter Levine's work, but in this practice, it's really about watching the body of the client and seeing how their body is responding to their internal state. And then allowing their body to do what it needs to do organically and naturally so the body heals itself. Mm. And I don't need a degree in this. I don't need to go to a year or two of higher education to learn this. And, and honestly, right now, like if I were to go back to school, I'd want it to be very specific. I'd want it to be about somatic experiencing. I'd want it to be about the body. And there isn't a program like that where I can get my master's in somatic experiencing. Not yet at least. And so I think that answers your question. You mentioned a second ago, something like you can, you just want to practice or you just want to see how somebody's body can present their emotions. How do you do that? Like, how do I like use some of these like tactics to kind of read their body language, translate it in a way? And then is there any like quick tips or tricks that I or anybody else could use? Or is it just a matter of like, you got to spend years doing this in other way? Yeah. So the first thing is to be in your body, right? Your body is your anchor. Your body is also your compass. And your body has mirror neurons. I think we can see this really clearly, like with your kids when they were younger, you're holding them in your lap and you laugh and they start laughing with you, right? And then they laugh and then you start laughing and then all of a sudden it's just like laughing back and forth, right? Or you smile and they smile, or they smile and you smile. So we have these mirror neurons that will reflect back what other people are feeling or what we're feeling and our bodies will sense that intuitively. And so the first thing is just to notice what's happening in your body. When I'm working with a guy, I'm feeling what I'm feeling in my body and then noticing what's happening in their body. And they might not be feeling anything consciously in their bodies, but it's as simple as noticing where they're holding tension and knowing how the body holds tension. And so 
oftentimes when guys are feeling anxious, they'll hold their shoulders up high. Oftentimes when people are feeling shame, they'll crunch over. And they might not even name that they're feeling shame, but I know what their body language is saying. And after years of studying people's bodies, I can simply just say, what's happening with your shoulders? And they might not even have the emotional vocabulary, but I might say, is there anxiety there? Right? And then it's like, yeah, there's anxiety. Okay. And so it's like about noticing, right? You're in an argument with your wife and you can notice that her body's tense up. Maybe her, she's clenching her jaw. Maybe her eyebrows are furrowed. Maybe she has tension in her chest. Maybe she's rigid. Maybe her fists are clenched. Those are all cues that you can take in and your wife doesn't have to say, I'm fucking pissed with you. You can say, oh, I can see you're pissed. <laughs> you're angry. And so there's an opportunity there, right? If you want to have clear communication, there's an opportunity for you to regulate your body, slow your body down, drop your shoulders, relax your face, bring calm back into your body, ground your feet into the earth, and then be that sense of safety for your wife. And then her body will start to mirror that. Right? Her body will start to say, oh, okay, he's slowed down. So I'm going to slow down too. So you're telling me which when she's yelling at me to not just freak out and yell back. Okay. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cause where's that going to get you? <laughs> mm, nowhere. And I still do it, but I'm, I'm getting there, man. It's step-by-step, step, you know, speaking of step-by-step. Step, so it sounds like, and you know, we've gone fairly surface level, but it sounds like, you know, since middle school, you've kind of been on this trajectory, right? I'm not going to say it's linear, but it sounds almost linear. Like, you know, you were, doing the theater and then you did some of the community stuff in high school and then you went to school for it and then you did Kaiser and then you did every man. And it's kind of like building up to where it's at now. Were there any low points? Were there any bad times, struggles? Yeah. Anything? Um, the first thing that comes up is, so my parents divorced when I was young. How young? So it started when I was seven. And it didn't really finalize until I was in the seventh grade. Mm. And so there is long periods of separation where I remember at the time it didn't, it felt normal, you know, as a young person, as a kid, I was super resilient. I just thought, yeah, this is like what life is. I didn't know anything else. In retrospect, I, it absolutely wasn't normal and it wasn't, it wasn't safe. And so when I was around eight, or nine, my parents separated, but they separated in the same house. We had a four bedroom home. My mom stayed in the master and my dad stayed in his office. I don't remember how long this was. It may have been a few years that this, it was like this, but through that time, the household was volatile. There's lots of yelling, lots of screaming, lots of slamming cabinets, lots of kicking cabinets, and then also lots of manipulation. My mom would come into my room and hold me. And, and I'm not blaming my parents for this, right? They didn't know. They didn't know how to be parents in that way. They didn't know how to, how to integrate safety. They didn't know how to co-parent <laughs> during a separation. They were, just weren't emotionally intelligent, you know? And so my mom would come into my room and she would hold me and cry, but also talk about how my dad had hurt her. And I became, very immediately became the adult in the relationship. I became my parents' confidant. They would tell me things, personal things about the relationship that an eight-year-old probably shouldn't have heard, probably shouldn't have been involved in. And there was a bit of like siding, right? Like, I want you on my side. I want you to back me up. And that was confusing for me because not 20 minutes later, my father would come into my room and close the door and then hold me and then cry and then tell me how much my mom had hurt him. And so, and then almost like make me side with him, you know, want me to side with him. And this happened for years where it was like this constant tug and pull. And it was fucked up, dude. Like looking back at it now, like I should have been in a, in a household where, well, first my parents should have fully separated and my parents should have definitely had a conversation about what it looks like to raise kids as separated parents. And then also not badmouth each parent, but let each other know, let us know as kids that this is what's happening. And we didn't get that. And so for, for years, it was very much this, like, I don't know whose side I'm on. And when my parents finally separated, 
I basically, my sister and I basically lived in a suitcase for years, man. It was completely unstable. Like we had closets at both of our parents' place, but we weren't there long enough to unpack our luggages. And so we would just put all our stuff in luggages and go back and forth for years over and over again. Um, and that was completely chaotic for me as a young person. Um, and I survived it. I completely survived it. And I developed terrible coping mechanisms for those survival strategies. Um, growing up, I, because I felt like I was my mom's confidant, I could not tell her what was going on with my life. I had trouble telling her what was going on with my life. Um, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse and it happened when I was young and it continued as I got into adolescence and um, it was by a close family member and it was like years and years of trauma and um, part of part of my coping with that was uh, that family member also introduced alcohol into our relationship. And so as I got older, I turned to alcohol when I was young. And the first time I got drunk, I was 10. The first time I threw up from drinking too much was I was 12. The first time I got alcohol poisoning, I was 16. And so um, this was like a really dark time in my life. And I was also coming into my sexual identity. And I was also raised in the church. And so I had all these competing narratives around who I needed to be, which spiraled me into alcohol. Alcohol was super accessible for me. And my parents didn't do anything about it. My parents didn't ask me to go to therapy. They would see, bro, they would see like vomit outside from drinking too much. They'd see the empty beer bottles underneath our tables, like hidden. They would see tequila bottles in the trash can and they wouldn't say anything. One time my father asked me if that was ours and we said no. And it was like, there's no one else that's drinking here, right? And it was so much of my parents' fear of addressing what was real that stopped them from confronting me about what was, what was going on with me. They were scared, you know, they were scared that this could have been real, but that's exactly what I needed. I needed them to confront me. I needed them to um, show me that they loved me that way, that they cared about me. And because, because they never really stepped in, alcoholism just continued to continue my life. And when I got into college, it was like, man, like alcohol, it, alcohol turned into different drugs. And those different drugs led me to really terrible, risky behavior in my life. I was coming, I was still coming into my sexual identity. And so I was partying like crazy. I was sleeping with women. And then I was also hopping on Craigslist because I felt so ashamed of my sexual identity and hooking up with strangers and then doing drugs with strangers and then hooking up with those strangers. And I like look back, I mean, today I look back at my life and and almost say like that was needed for me to be where I am today. Like in many ways, those were my North stars. Like I needed this path to get to where I am today. But do I feel like I could have had a healthier upbringing? Absolutely, 100%. Do I wish that I had parents that weren't afraid to address the issues? Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, my, my life, I, I can look back at those traumas and have immense gratitude for them. And when I reconnect with that inner child, that young part, he was fucking scared, man. And he was resilient as fuck. He just knew how to bounce back. He like knew how to get back on his feet and just do it. And maybe he fell over and like had another spill, but he got up over and over and over again. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those experiences. I'm sure that wasn't always the case, always the feeling. Absolutely. Gratitude. Absolutely. I mean, shame was was a predominant feeling in my life. I know shame very, very well. And then when I was 23, I was finally starting come, to come to, I was like right on the edge of killing myself. It was either I kill myself or I come out. Those are the only options. 
And I decided to choose my happiness and my life over killing myself. And what that meant was I needed to come out. And what coming out looked like, and I knew that this was going to happen, was it looked like I was going to lose family members and I was going to lose an entire community, my church. And I was willing to risk that because I had spent, since I was going through puberty, I knew, I knew at a young age that I was gay. And through those years, I thought that I was gay. It was because I was sexually abused by another boy. And so I carried on the shame for a lot of my life. And I thought that I could heal myself by sleeping with women. I thought that I was sick. I thought, oh, yeah, like, I don't have any experience with having sex with women. So that's exactly how I'm going to cure myself. And it never happened. And so when I was 23, I knew that I was going to lose a community, but I knew that I needed to come out because I didn't want to kill myself. I knew that I had so much more to give. And I'm incredibly grateful for the mentors in my life because they gave me that stability. I knew that I can lean on them for that stability. Speaking of mentors, was your uncle around? Were you expressing no. this to him? during this time no, you know? so he was actually the relationship that i was afraid to lose and and i did lose that relationship he was the second person i came out to i, I came out to my mom and then i came out to my uncle and um that was in 2011 march 9th 2011 remember the date and uh, i haven't talked to him since yeah he completely cut me out of his life yeah and and that was really hard it was, it was a really difficult time, but I still had my mentor, Kevin. And um, I came out to my mom and she didn't talk to me for six months. Came out to my uncle, hadn't talked to him since. And the third person I talked to was Kevin. And it was um, around March 15th or so. And uh, I was graduating college and I was, um, I was just fucked up, man. I was just like, I didn't know what my life was. I was coming into this milestone of graduating college and like had this whole life ahead of me and I didn't know what was going on. And he was, he lives in Cape Cod and I was living in San Jose, California. And I hit him up. It was like fucking 3 a.m. And I just kept calling his phone number and finally he picked up and um, she just said, hey, what's up? And I said, hey. Uh, I need to tell you something. And he said, what do you want to tell me? And I said, I think I'm gay. And um, the only thing that he said to me was, I'm proud of you. That was it. He's like, I'm proud of you, Michael. I'm here for you. I'm proud of you. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed. I just needed to hear one person say that I'm proud of you. And then I was good. Is he still in your life? Oh my God. Yeah. I talk to him all the time. Hmm. Yeah. It's been a really interesting relationship because I, I now see him as like a peer. And so there, there are times in the last 10 years of our relationship where I've mentored him hmm. in his life. And because I'm in the state, uh, in this space of emotional awareness and emotional intelligence, he comes to me for advice around how to handle different emotional things that's happening in work for him or in his family. And so the roles have changed a bit, which I love. I love that in our relationship. Um, so, yeah, man. Well, thanks for sharing, first of all. Curious, how how did you meet your husband? The good old grinder. Was this in the Bay Area? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it was supposed to be a one-night stand, one morning stand, really. Yeah, we were going to hook up and be like, okay, see ya, never see you again. And um, it was January 1st, 2012, and we were like both coming from our parties, staying in our respective hotel rooms, and he hit me up, and I came over and had sex, and the rest was history. It was like he was living in Seattle at the time and um, he came to San Francisco for New Year's and I met him and it was like, we just knew each other. We just, and then we ended up spending the rest of the weekend together. 
we met in January and then he moved to back to the area in May. Wow. And then we basically moved in with each other. And so, yeah, we've been together for 11 years, been married for almost seven. When did, when did you guys decide to move down to Mexico? So we came here in 2018, around the same time that I found Everyman. He was here teaching a workshop and I came in to visit and we both fell in love with the place. And 10 days later, we bought a house. <laughs> this is your dream house, right? My dream house. Yeah, I'm in it. You found your dream house right in, in, in 10 days? I did. Yeah. It was actually the first house that we walked wow. into. Wow. Yeah, we walked right into it and we said, we'll take it. And our real estate agent was like, uh, well, we got like five or six more homes to go visit. And we were like, okay, sure. But this is the one. And so, so um, what do you, what we, do you love about that town? Oh man. One, I really love the climate here. Is it similar to Mexico city? Yeah. Very similar. Dry, warm. We have a rainy season. It's beautiful when it rains. And what I really love is like most, most of the year, man, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. Our winters get cold. They're not brutal, but our winters feel like fall in the United States. I'll have layers in the morning, but once it hits noon, one o'clock, I'm like changing into shorts and a shirt. I'm in shorts and a shirt for a few hours. And then I put back on my layers. And I love that. I love, I love the climate here. I also really love the people here. There's Mexicans and the culture. It reminds me of Filipinos. We have a very similar, maybe it's like the Spanish colonization that's similar. But what I love about being in Mexico is the hospitality that's here, that people are here to help and people are kind and loving and interested and curious. And that reminds me of the Philippines. It, it, it feels like family in a way that the Filipinos are very like, come inside my house and let's eat. Like you're not leaving my home without um, a full belly. And Mexicans are very family oriented. They like stick in pods and they really care about that family value. And that's how I was raised. I was raised like that. I was raised to really value being raised with my cousins and my aunts and uncles and this larger tribe. What I also really love about being here is that on like a financial level, I love that my husband and I can do what we want. You know, we're not in the hustle of the of the United States. You know, in, in the Bay Area, we're spending $10,000 a month just to live, man. You know, $10,000 just to live. And here, we're not spending that much money to live. What are the downsides, though? Like, did you have to rescind your citizenships? Did you, no. I don't know. What are, the, what are some of the downsides? I think that I've been thinking about this. Like the downside is like now that I, I just feel like I'm living in the nineties again. Like it's just like things aren't just like as accessible as they are in the United States. Right. In the United States, I can order things from Target, Walmart. I can order things from like Uber. I can order things from I can order weed, right? <laughs> and like it'll be like at my doorstep in like twenty-five to forty minutes. And here we don't just we don't have those kinds of services. Not yet, at least. Where I live, I don't have them. If you were to go into downtown, there's Uber Eats and there's all these other delivery organizations or companies. Um, the language barrier is difficult here. I'm not fluent in Spanish yet. In the United States, there's always people that are like, you know, you need to learn English before you come to this country, like speak my language kind of thing. And it's not like that here. There are a lot of people here in my town, at least, that speak English. But I want to have the respect for the culture, and I don't want to have to force someone to speak English to communicate with me. And so right now, I'm really passionate about learning Spanish because that also is going to connect me with the community. It's going to connect me with more people, and I am going to feel more belonging in this community when I'm fluent in Spanish. I, I'm really, I, can, I can get around. I can ask for things. I can, I'll be, I'm completely fine in a restaurant or even small talk with some people, but I'm nowhere near sharing my experiences. Like I want to have these kinds of conversations with Spanish speakers here, you know, and I want to be fluid in it and fluent in it. And I'm just not there yet. So the last question that I have is you work with men, you've been working with men for years. 
if they're remotely interested in this idea of emotional safety, emotional uh, intelligence, what's one thing that they can do if they're starting from scratch like I was, and I, I kind of still am, what can they do? What's one cool. simple act? Or maybe it's something that they should stop doing, but it's relatively simple. You know, for, for physical fitness, it's like, just, just do one push up tomorrow just to get started. Because for most people, including me, you're looking at the top of the mountain and it looks unconquerable. Yeah. So do you, do you have any tips, any thoughts? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Join a men's group. <laughs> you know, at every man, we have some free dropping groups for 60 minutes long. Come sit for 60 minutes and see what happens. If it doesn't resonate with you, all good. There's a ton of other men's organizations out there that you can lean on. But come check us out first. Come to every man, sit in a group. And if it feels good, come back again. And if that feels good still, come back again. And if it still feels good, come to our retreat, do one of our online programs. And then if that still feels good, start your own men's group, you know, find some homies, get five to six guys in your community and sit with each other every week and share. I love that idea. And thank you for that advice. So evryman.com, everyman.com, any other place where people can find you? Yeah. Check out my website. MikeSagoon.com, M-I-K-E-S-A-G-U-N.com. I spend a lot of time on Instagram. So if you're on Instagram, it's just my name, Mike.Sagoon. Yeah, connect with me. Say hi. Beautiful. Thanks, man. This was special. I got to be honest. This was great. Mm. This is. I had high expectations and I think this exceeded them. So Oof, thanks for sharing. Um, Thank you. Stay in touch. I'm sure we'll be yeah. texting. Thank you for this opportunity, man. Of course, man. I'd love to see you, if not on a Zoom call, in person. Yeah, let's make that happen. Sooner than later, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot for 2024. So sounds good. All right, All right. brother, love you. Love you too. Talk soon. See ya.